Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, enough already. Should we just forget the Surrey policing mess and begin planning for our provincial police force? Plus, from lithium to cobalt to copper to nickel, we look at BC's supply chain of critical minerals powering our tech future. Plus, fire weather. Author John Vallant joins us to discuss his new book and why devastating wildfires will only get worse in BC. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Social media, it's everywhere, of course, from Facebook to Snapchat to Twitter to TikTok to Instagram. It's a part of our lives, increasingly our kids as well. Well, today, the U.S. Surgeon General is warning that there is not enough evidence to show that social media use is safe for children and teens and is calling on tech companies, parents and caregivers to take immediate action to protect kids now. Vivek Murthy is asking tech companies to share data and increase transparency with researchers as well and with the public. Here is U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy earlier today. We see rates of depression and anxiety and suicide and loneliness going up among young people. And I'm concerned that social media is an important driver of that youth mental health crisis. Uh, this is the defining public health issue of our time, youth mental health. I appreciate that the technology companies have taken some steps uh, to try to, to keep kids safe, but it hasn't been nearly enough. What's at stake here is, is our kids and their future, plain and simple. Defining public health issue of our time. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, this announcement from the U.S. Surgeon General is Jesse Miller, social media expert and founder of Mediated Reality. Jesse, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jazz. What do you make uh, of, of this, of this uh, announcement from the U.S. Surgeon General? Well, this is a very good announcement in the sense that we're putting a lot more onus on the transparency that's needed from social media companies in the sense of the data that's collected, how it impacts young users. And at the end of the day, too, it also reflects that parents and guardians do play a significant role. Um, we could see government highlight things like, oh, we need more regulation. And we see that from the senators and states people all the time where they just want to regulate something. But for the Surgeon General to come out and say there are, there's, no, there's no clear way of saying that social media is safe, it's then expanding the conversation to various points that we have to explore, whether it's from the school-based systems, whether it's from access, or most importantly, how kids use these tools in our everyday lives. Now, I was reading uh, the report, and one of the critical factors in, in some of the stories I've been reading is a child's brain development. Adults, you know, you can suffer uh, some of the harmful effects of social media as an adult, but for kids, you know, the stage of brain development uh, is different than an adult's, uh, and that which can impact their self-esteem, uh, depression, all of that. I mean, what is wrong with regulating it or at least banning it, let's say, for younger kids at 13, 14, 15 using it? Well, in 2017, a really interesting study came out that showed that middle, middle school-age kids, let's say 11, 12, 13, mm-hmm. didn't have the emotional co- competencies to navigate 24-hour communications. So this idea of everything from their everyday school life now being available to them on a 24-hour clock. And if we think about this, though, if we look at our adult population, I think we all know one individual in our lives who really shouldn't be on social media the way they conduct themselves. So there are regulatory pieces that go into play about how we should address misinformation or how we should address uh, access. And age plays a role, but also maturity plays a dramatic role. And one of the things the Surgeon General Report highlights here is that the majority of studies – 
indicates that young people, we can't put them into a, a big blanket of negative impacts. We have to look at each individual situation. Unfortunately, we don't have the resources to sit down with each individual child and assess how their specific use of social media either impacts them negatively or positively. We have to look for the red flags. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much of an onus, I know the, the Surgeon General talked about, and not just tech companies, but parents, how much of an onus is this an, or a wake-up call for parents in regards to monitoring what their kids are consuming and how they're interacting with social media. Yeah, I think most parents go to the boogeyman effect of the negative with predatory behaviors. They look to protect their children online from the things that they're most scared of. But when we look at these studies that highlight things like 9 out of 10 young women highlight some form of mental health uh, impacts because of social media, we forget that there's stages where these questions are now being asked more openly. So traditionally in the 1990s, 1980s, if you went to the counseling office at a high school, there was career placement. There was conversations around where you're going with your next steps. Not a lot of conversations about your brain health. And so now when we have parents asking the question of what's the communication like with your friends? What's your internet experience like? Most parents still go to that space of concern when it comes to safety as opposed to what's your experience been like. One of the things I've noticed over the last uh, couple of years is the amount of lawsuits that are being launched either by uh, schools in the U.S., uh, parents uh, as well in the U.S. And in some cases, you're also seeing law firms uh, representing parents uh, in regards to uh, the impact social media is having on children. Uh, there's a law- trial lawyer named Matt Bergman. Uh, he was, uh, his law firm uh, were f- known for winning hundreds of millions of dollars suing uh, the, the makers of the building material asbestos for concealing its links with uh, obviously cancer. You're seeing more and more lawyers getting involved, more class action lawsuits. I think in the case of Mr. Bergman, his firm has signed up more than 1,200 clients who wish to sue various social media companies. Um, Do you think this is going to be part of it as well, that tech companies also are going to have to be, um, you know, hesitant or at least accept the fact that they can expect more lawsuits from parents, from students, from school districts uh, in the years ahead as we move forward, as we see more and more uh, the impact of social media on their lives? I think we can. Again, remember, the United States is very good at getting these lawsuits kind of in the front and center of media. We don't see that as much from around the world. But one of the things that I want to keep in mind here is that we can't compare social media to substance use like like the tobacco industry. We know that tobacco and nicotine can affect the majority of humans equally, right? If I smoke a pack a day and you smoke a pack a day and we keep ourselves in a very similar space, we're eventually going to have the same kind of effects. But the thing is, based on our genetics, we may be more predisposed than the other. Social media plays a very different role in the sense that I can consume social media today for two hours and I can walk away and be like, hey, I'm fine. You could spend two hours on it and then all of a sudden have emotional connections to the things that you're missing in your day. So some of these lawsuits are somewhat frivolous, in my opinion, but the reality of it is is that when we see these companies being held to task, there's also the idea that they also have their own lawyers who present the terms of service and what people agree to, and the majority of users don't read those terms of service. So when we hear about young people online, there are literally – uh, documents and documents they agree to, but really no one's ever really overseeing it. So mm-hmm. where does that become an argument? In the courts and the judge's side. Uh, do you think interest in social media is waning? And I don't mean just 
you know, the usual complaints about Twitter and Elon Musk, but the overall use of social media, you know, you can see young people, you know, have no interest in Facebook uh, and, and, you know, others may not like other social media. I mean, is, are we reading, reaching a maturity age for social media where people are saying, you know what, it looked great when I first started, when I had my first Facebook account, but uh, I don't need this in my life anymore. Do you think there's a maturity there as well overall from society saying, maybe this isn't the best thing for me? Not at all. And again, we compare it to the substance use, right? A glass of wine a day versus three or, you know, a cigarette versus a pack. I think the majority of people have normalized their use of social media where it feels almost harmonized with all the other medias they consume, whether it be watching streaming services or listening to the radio. I think when we consider ourselves users of technology, we get to a point where we don't actually measure the amount of time, but the quantity or quality of time. And, I, and, and just as a note for all listeners, the, the concerns around screen time, the concerns about consumption, it isn't whether or not you spend five hours a day using these tools. It is the idea of whether you use it for purpose. And so kids who use social media for purpose, whether it be interacting with friends, whether it be absorbing content or creating content themselves, those kids right there are really kind of aware of how they use this tool. And so what we do have to look for are the red flags of consumption in a negative space. Jesse, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Jess. Well, over the uh, this past weekend, Vancouver City staff began removing Stanley Park's uh, temporary bike lane, uh, the process that, of course, will reopen two lanes of Stanley Park's Stanley Park Drive to to vehicle traffic. Now, cyclists did gather uh, over the weekend to protest their removal. Uh, some of them were members of the advocacy group Hub Cycling. We had Lisa Slackoff from Hub Cycling join us on Monday to talk a little bit about uh, the policy of the new uh, park board and new city council. Uh, take a listen to her comments. But there have been mobility issues um, in Stanley Park. There's no, there's no public transit except to get right into the very entrance of the park. There used to be transit all around the park dropping people off. Um, you know, there's the people talk about the seawall as being a great access route for people who want to bike. But if anybody's been out on that seawall in the summer, it's actually getting really dangerous because there's so many people walking and biking. People are falling off that little lip from the cyclist um, path onto the pedestrian path. There's just so many people. Um, we really need more alternative transportation um, ways in the park. Now, that was Lisa Slackoff from Hub Cycling uh, and commenting about what's wrong with removing bike lanes. There are many people who support the park board uh, saying that was a uh, an election promise and they're going ahead with it. Joining me now is Bonnie McKenzie, spokesperson for Stanley Park for All. Uh, now, Bonnie, before we get to talking about traffic in, in the downtown core a little bit, your your thoughts just on the fact that the, there is, there, the park board has begun the removal of that Stanley Park bike lane. Yes, yes, they have. They in February they made the decision to move remove most of the bike lane. Not all of the bike lane it will be removed. There will still be one choke point, but they are looking at removing all of the bike lane. And you're supportive of that, of course, right? Yes, we are very supportive of that, and we're pleased to see that the um, commissioners actually lived up to their election promise and are proceeding with doing exactly and what they promised. Before we get to the, the next issue here, but just want to clarify, you support the removal of the, the temporary bike lane simply because it impacted people's ability to access Stanley Park. Yes, we believe the park is there as a park, and everyone should have access, regardless whether they 
uh, are cyclists, whether they drive cars, whether they have mobility issues. A lot of disabled people um, were denied access once that bike lane went in and the parking was removed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we believe access for all, that cyclists, cars, people with disabilities, families with strollers and kids, tourists, um, everyone is access for all. And you believe that there should be a bike lane, but it's uh, it, uh, the own, its own bike lane uh, separate from uh, the two lanes that are already there. Like the, the separate bike lanes should be built in Stanley Park. I would like to see separate bike lanes built in Stanley Park. I agree with the um, woman from Hub that, yes, the amount of people using the bike lane on the seawall is substantial, especially with the pedestrians. I think certainly in an interim measure until the city staff come back or the park board staff come back with an option for a a permanent bike lane in the park would be to um, put in some type of safety measures separating the pedestrians from the bikes on the seawall. The seawall is extensively used. When they first put in this temporary bike lane, it was to get people off the seawall. That didn't work. Cyclists still go on the seawall. The families go on the seawall. That's what they want to cycle. It's flat. It's pretty. That's what they want. The people who are using the temporary bike lane are the the cyclists who really like to go fast and are looking at speed. They're a minority, but yet it did provide an element of safety for them prior to the temporary bike lane. They basically rode on the road with the car, shared it with the cars, and to my knowledge, there was never an issue. And now with this opening of the lane, explain to me what this will mean for traffic in uh, in and around the West End and in and around Stanley Park. Okay, the opening of the lane um, really is not an, the, the traffic issue for the Stanley Park. The, with, when they put in the bike lane, they closed off the exit from the park to vehicles to West York to um, Beach Avenue. So now, when they put the bike lane in, they redirected all the traffic down North Lagoon Drive to exit onto West Georgia Street. Mm-hmm. That's still in place. When they removed the bike lane, that diversion of traffic to West Georgia will still be in place. What they had planned to do in February when they passed that motion was because the problem they've got now that they created, they created this problem, is that getting on out of the park onto West Georgia is a nightmare. It is like many, 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 you're just, it's just a parking lot. Hmm. So what they have come up with as an alternative that when they remove this bike lane, they're also going to redirect the traffic, not along North Lagoon Drive towards Georgia Street, but down towards Lagoon Drive and into the West End. So you, the traffic will have two choices. They can go all the way around to Georgia Street, and if anyone's ever done that in the last two years, you're never going to want to do that again. Or else you can come down and go along Lagoon Drive, and then it dumps you out on Nelson Street, Barclay Street, and Robson Street in the West End. And then you would then go to Denman. Now, if you've ever driven on Denman now, Denman is essentially a parking lot itself. So you're going to have all of that vehicle traffic, and the reason they did this was because there was so much vehicle traffic going on to Georgia Street that it was really, really a nightmare. And now they're going to take all of that traffic and put it out into the West End, into Nelson, Barclay, and Robson. So what do you want to see done? What do they need to do? They need to put the, the access out of the park for vehicles back to Beach Lane, back to Beach Avenue. They closed that off 
um, when they put the bike lane in. They can take that out. It was there before the bike lane went in. Just put it back the way it was and have the traffic go out onto Beach Avenue. There's, it's only about a, a two-block, two-and-a-half-block area. Um, it would allow the traffic, because Beach Avenue has always been an arterial road, mm-hmm. I believe, for the city of Vancouver, and it needs to remain that way. And people come along there to go up um, Denman to be able to go over to the well, it, North it's, Shore. It's, it's, Bonnie, it's literally back to the future, what you're saying here. It's just yes, whatever. it is definitely back to the future. <laughs> it was never broken. I don't know why they tried to, why they did this. And this is the point. Put it back. And it's only two blocks. There still is a bicycle lane there. Like this, it's not that cyclists can't then get into the park. There's still a bicycle lane there. There always was. It was never taken away. And then just allow vehicles to have two lanes of vehicle each way on Beach Avenue. Now Denman Denman's always been busy, so you're just well, you're t- I haven't been down there in a while, but it, it, it's even busier now because of what, the way they've uh, the, the configuration of, of of the roadways. Oh, it's it's really busy between they've taken out now with um, a lot of the um, restaurants and things on Denman Street. They now have patios out in the parking on the one lane of roadway, so it's really uh, one lane going each way and then um when you get close to rush hour it you just sit there you just sit there for minutes and minutes well, and minutes trying to move sounds like a, a bit of a, a nightmare for those uh, who are driving so i appreciate your time today uh, bonnie hopefully this all gets dealt with we do find a solution to actually have bicycles and bike lanes in in stanley park but at the same time as you say make sure it's accessible for all folks uh, seniors included uh, and those uh, who felt they have not been welcome in stanley park as well and solve the issue for those folks living in the west end as well bonnie thank you so much for your time today Oh, thank you very much. I agree with you. Thank you. The business environment uh, is incredibly challenging post-COVID. Think uh, supply chain issues, global uh, competition, all of that. Well, today the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade released a study uh, that says BC businesses will be hit with an additional $6.5 billion in government-imposed costs between 2022 and and 2024. Joining me now is Bridget Anderson, President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Bridget, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Jeff. Uh, so walk me through this. Where are these costs coming from? Well, you know, we're, maybe I'll back up because where we started with this, as we had been hearing for quite some time from our members that, you know, British Columbia is a costly jurisdiction to do business. So we thought what we should do is put some we should quantify that and really put a pen to paper and figure out what some of those costs are. So we looked from 2022 to 2024, and we were pretty specific in what we looked at. So you mentioned the cumulative $6.5 billion in additional costs. So that lists out as about $4 billion in the employer's health tax, $1.6 billion in corporate tax, $1.2 billion in the new paid sick leave, the five days, and then the business portion of the carbon tax, which is about a little over $500 million. So adding all of that up, it's about $6.5 billion, which is really significant. Where do you want government to cut or to reduce the taxes? <laughs> so that's the magic question. Yeah, I, I, yes, it is. And, you know, we, we thought that we can't really put this on the table unless we give some recommendations for solutions. And mm-hmm. so, really, we want the government to increase the threshold on the employer health tax. 
and and specifically really for small and medium businesses. So if we right now, we have got one of the lowest thresholds. So if we had raised it to one and a half million, say, that would be aligned with jurisdictions like Manitoba. We also think that there's an opportunity to introduce some PST exemptions on the kind of costs that businesses are facing where they are investments, you know, like software and equipment. When it comes to the carbon tax, we all agree that, you know, we have to make this transition to the clean economy. But we're seeing that some of these funds that are being raised through the carbon tax aren't necessarily going back into businesses and into innovation. So we want to see those revenues going into local companies to ensure that we are doing some emissions reductions efforts. And then finally, I think there's really an opportunity in a broad way to look at opportunities to reduce costs. I mean, we just looked at 2022 to 2024, but if we stand back, there's been all kinds of other costs too, whether it's the increase in minimum wage, personal tax rate, statutory holiday, the reversion back to the PST. I mean, the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to touch on the carbon tax for a second, some of it is going into general mm-hmm. revenue. Is that the concern? Uh, well, it does appear that way. You know, we're, we're really we're working with the numbers that we could find from government. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it's not entirely clear to us, but we know that the government has got the Clean BC Industry Fund. And so that's great. But we need to be talking about the new pricing system that's going to be coming into effect and we need to really understand how that's, the system is going to work, number one, and make sure it's fair. And then understand that, that these revenues need to be going back into innovation to really help accelerate the clean energy transition. Is British Columbia just too expensive, too expensive to do business? And, and, I, and I don't mean to be flipping about this, but I hear this quite a bit. I mean, I got into the elevator to come up to the offices that last week, and somebody asked what's on the show today. It was a stranger. He says, well, too, we're taxed too much, Jazz. you got to bring that issue up. And so here I am bringing that issue. You up, but I, I hear this consistently more and more that it's just it's really expensive to do business and start a business in this province. Well, it's like death by a thousand cuts. So it's expensive to do business in BC. It's expensive to live in BC. So and for employees, and when you look at accumulatively, that's where it really becomes quite staggering. So we've got the highest marginal tax rate on new business investment. We've got North America's fourth highest personal tax rate at 53.5%. And then you add on those other costs that I've been talking about, the employer health tax, which is a payroll tax paid by the employer, mm-hmm. uh, paid sick leave. Like I, the list goes on and on. So it really is cumulative. And it, the, the, the risk here is that we are a global marketplace and we are looking to invest dollars Uh, We are looking for companies and organizations and people to invest dollars, and we are looking to attract people. Mm -hmm. And if this jurisdiction becomes too expensive, they'll just simply put their dollars elsewhere. Do you think we're competitive with Alberta or Washington State presently? I don't think we're competitive enough. And I think that can't be underscored, that uh, being competitive just requires keeping your foot on the pedal all the time. And we can see that Alberta is hungry for business. They've been uh, very creative in trying to attract business to their province at our expense. And if you look at Washington State, I mean, their highest personal tax rate is 16.5% higher. That's, that's then what, like, it's just ridiculous. So we need to be able to be competitive to Alberta, to Ontario, to Quebec to Washington, 
we have to think really broadly about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to go back to the employer health tax. Now, that was brought mm-hmm. in a- after uh, the provincial government acts the MSP plan premium that individuals previously had to pay. Not all individuals, but most, a lot of people have their MSP premiums paid for by their employer, but there was a set group of people who had to pay out mm-hmm. of their own pocket after the, 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 the NDP came into power in 2017. Uh, are you, as, a, as an organization, philosophically, philosophically against the employer health tax, or is this a question of just raising the threshold above the 500,000, you said 1.5 million? Yeah, you know, recognizing that healthcare is a significant concern for individuals and for businesses. You know, what we're saying is the threshold needs to be higher. Uh, we look at, you know, a million and a half would put us in line with like Manitoba, for example. So that would be something that, and we've been advocating to the government. I've spoken to Minister Conroy about this personally a few times. It is something the government should look at doing and could do quite easily. Bridget, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jazz. I appreciate it. I just wanted to run a quick soundbite here for you. We learned today in the city of Phoenix, if you've ever traveled to Phoenix, I know a lot of Canadians do head down to Arizona. Well, today we learned that when you order an Uber at the Phoenix airport, uh, Uber will pick you up just like Vancouver. The only difference is there will be no driver. Yes, they announce autonomous vehicle Ubers for Phoenix airport. Take a listen to uh, Phoenix Mayor uh, Kate Gallego today. We are the first airport in the world where you can take an autonomous vehicle, and now we'll be the first community in the world where you can hail it with your Uber app. This is the culmination of years of testing. I can tell you for years, we've stepped outside of City Hall and seen Waymo testing in our community, mapping, getting ready for announcements like the one that we have made today. I have been in a Waymo, and you can see every car on its computer interface, every pedestrian, That's much more than I can see as an individual Mm. driver. So I think this is a great win for Uh, technology and innovation, but uh, also long-term safer community. uh, That's a hard pass for me at this moment. (laughs) I want them to test that out a little bit more. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. I just wonder if the the autonomous vehicle Uber asked for a tip at the end of it. Uh, Who knows? But let's let's catch up with our good friend, uh, Jeremy Cato. He's an automotive journalist at CatoCarGuy.com. I want to talk to him a little bit about EVs today. Uh, Jeremy, would you take the autonomous vehicle Uber at the Phoenix airport? Uh, only if I knew who I could sue when it gets into a crash. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, maybe the city of Phoenix has deep pockets. Maybe Waymo does. Uh, but I want to know who's responsible. If there's no driver, then I'm going to go after somebody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's a little too soon, kind of like artificial intelligence. But I want to talk to you on the show today about a couple of news stories that uh, sort of I've been looking at sure. over the last week or so. ExxonMobil, which of course is the Texas oil giant uh, known for drilling for oil, processing oil, selling oil through its mobile um, gas station chain, uh, announced recently that uh, they have purchased purchased, uh, a significant amount of property, 120,000 gross acres in the Smackover Formation in southern Arkansas. Uh, they pur- purchased a company, Galvanic Energy. Uh, the price tag was about $100 million, but they're going to be, uh, I guess, drilling for lithium. What are your thoughts on all this? Um, well, I, I think that uh, I'd be wary of oil companies buying up uh, anything that could prove to be a potential negative for their own businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's number one. Car companies, I mean, have uh, been notorious over the last 100 years of buying up technology and then shelving it. Um, in order to keep that from entering the marketplace. So that, that's that's my first thought. The second thought is that 
lithium is is one of the many components that goes into batteries that's really important. Um, and the U.S. is way behind on developing its its developing its own battery uh, supply chain, um, behind even Canada, Denmark, and Sweden. So, and certainly way behind China. So, these these this is a development that doesn't surprise me. Um, but there's a lot. I think there's more questions than answers at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, one of the other things that we also uh, uh, were reading about this week uh, was that the Ford uh, Motor Company has also uh, uh, been signing uh, deals with uh, uh, critical uh, mineral uh, suppliers uh, to essentially, I guess, uh, first of all, a uh, guarantee a steady supply of some of these critical minerals, particularly lithium. Uh, but they say that this will allow them to uh, build up to 2 million electric vehicles by 2026. Uh, how uh, important is this type of announcement? Uh, critical, uh, because, you know, the auto industry is under enormous pressure to, to bring, to really go to all electric vehicle production for new vehicles by somewhere around 2035-ish, depending on your jurisdiction. Um, In these announcements, though, Jazz, I've looked at the same ones that you have. Mm -hmm. What I'm looking for, which I do not see, are the provisions to keep or even make the EV supply chain clean. I mean, the EV supply chain is notoriously ugly and carbon intensive. And if you're just a regular consumer who's going to live anywhere near any of these uh, elements, especially the mines, you got to be wondering, um, how am I being protected from these kinds of negative elements? So, for example, Indonesia is the largest producer of, of uh, nickel, which is another key component. Mm-hmm. Well, nickel, Indonesia generates about 20 tons of carbon dioxide per ton of nickel. Uh, I mean, th- those, these are huge amounts. So we need to think about the protections for the average person on the street near the elements of the supply chain, the mines included, of course. Mm-hmm. What was interesting, I, I guess there's a, a two-day event uh, being held in Michigan this week to convince in, uh, investors that, you know, with these de- with this lithium deal and many other uh, deals in regards to critical minerals, that uh, uh, Ford says that uh, they're planning for a 16-fold increase in EV production in the span of just a few years. Now, if I'm looking to buy an EV, uh, should I hold <laughs> off for the next couple of years in regards to just, you know, everybody talks about Tesla and all that, but in regards to wanting choice, in regards to a variety of price points, is it better to wait another year or two before jumping into the EV market at this particular point? Without question. Uh, uh, there's no doubt about it because you just can't buy an affordable EV yet. Um, I, I'm this week, as a matter of fact, testing a Kia Nero EV, which is one of the most affordable uh, that you can buy on the market today. And the fully loaded Nero EV that I'm driving, which is a, just a compact hatchback, very nice little car, mm-hmm. but its price is $54,000. Now it's eligible for about seven grand uh, minus the excise taxes uh, in, in, in uh, incentives, but we're still talking mid forties to buy a city runabout. So if, if I were to go going looking for a car today, given that fuel prices are high, and I think there's still some lack of clarity in where the whole EV thing is going. I'd look for a hybrid. Um, you can get, you know, four liters per 100 kilometers of, uh, of, of uh, fuel economy out of a typical Prius or, 
or Kia hybrid. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty darn efficient. And you don't have to worry about gas tanks or fill-ups or um, um, electrical fill-ups or, any, or mines or the lithium supply chain or any of those other things. And you're, and you're going to get low emissions with it as well. So you cut your fuel bill, bill in half, cut your emissions by about two-thirds to three-quarters, and let's wait and see until mm-hmm. the prices come down. The next three or four years, seem, from what I can tell uh, as a layperson, it seems to be there's going to be a lot of challenges but changes as well. If Ford can do what they say in regards to a 16-fold increase in regards to production, if there are a variety of, of, uh, of models that are going to be made available, uh, if there's greater clarity in regards to charging stations across this province, this city, this country, um, we could be at a, at a sort of a tipping point potentially. Oh, for sure. For, I, I mean, I, I think that the EVs are coming uh, in, uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, if no other, if none other, that the Americans are going to throw about $800 billion, uh, the Biden administration, at various uh, clean energy technologies over the, you know, within the next decade, and that's going to be a great catalyst. But we still don't have a decent charging infrastructure. We still don't have answers to how uh, consumers and apartment dwellers and homeowners are are going to be able to afford electric vehicles. And we really don't have any answers um, around the questions that I asked when I ran for political office last fall, Jazz, which is why don't we spend more money on transit? Um, You know, if we had high high speed rail connections between, for example, Toronto, uh, Ottawa and Montreal, that would cost around $12 billion dollars. Uh, and you take a ton of cars and planes off the roads and out of the skies. And that $12 billion is about $2 billion less than taxpayers in Ontario and across Canada are spending to subsidize a battery plant in Ontario. Maybe wow. we need to rethink those elements uh, as well if we really want to reduce uh, emissions. Jeremy, thanks for your time today. Okay. <laughs> I hope that was the answer you wanted. That was. Well, I'd say there's lots, there's a lot of questions, so I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. China is currently the dominant global refiner of critical minerals and the world's largest producer of EV batteries and clean technologies like solar cells. But there's no doubt we have those critical minerals here in British Columbia and in Canada as well, notably copper, nickel, lithium, and cobalt. And they are the building blocks for uh, aerospace, defense, and, and communications technology. They're part of the present and future when it comes to technology uh, here and around the globe as well. Joining me now is Michael Goring, President and CEO of the Mining Association of British Columbia. Michael, welcome. Nice to see you, Jess. Yeah, nice to see you as well. So give me a sense, a snapshot of where the mining industry is right now in British Columbia. Well, there's uh, lots of excitement today with respect to mining. Um, critical minerals offer British Columbia really a new and generational opportunity. And it's an opportunity that is literally and figuratively right under our feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, in regards to opening a mine, and growing up in the interior uh, in Williams Lake, I was thinking about the Gibraltar mine, which is probably about half an hour, 45 minutes outside of Williams Lake, provided a lot of, provided a lot of jobs uh, for folks uh, in and around the Caribou. I've spent a lot of time out in the Kootenays as well, a lot of mines there. How challenging with the environmental challenges that we have and questions that we ask, and those are, uh, I think, the right questions we have to be asking in today's society. We've got First Nations issues as well. Uh, how challenging is it to open a mine in this province today? Well, uh, it is challenging. Yeah. And um, the big challenge, is, of course, is time and the time it takes to undertake and successfully conclude uh, 
the permitting and authorizations for a mine. Uh, mining is the most highly regulated industry in Canada. Mm-hmm. And there's reasons for that, um, you know, to ensure that it's done safely and mm. responsibly and in a st- sustainable way. And it is. Um, but uh, all told, uh, actually, um, I would quote uh, the current um, uh, federal minister uh, for Natural Resources Canada, um, and he's stated that uh, last year at at, uh, at the PDAC conference in Toronto, which is a big mm. mining conference, uh, Minister Wilkinson said, you know, it, it can't take 15 years to permit a mine in Canada. Does it take 15 years to permit a mine in British Columbia today or, or in and around that? We're in and around. We're looking at probably 11, 12, 13 years to permit a mine. It- why would somebody want to do that now if it takes 11 or 12 years? Would you not want to go to Chile? Would you not want to go to some other jurisdictions instead of this province? I know we do it well. I know we have the talent here. Uh, but 11, 12 years of spending dollars and dealing with government, dealing with consultations is significant. It certainly is. Um, it is a, a uh, significant undertaking with lots of capital um, and it's high risk. Uh, but in British Columbia, we are considered a global mining jurisdiction. Yeah, we have um, you know lots of uh, fantastic minerals, a, a good solid resource endowment, mm-hmm. um, and um, well, you know mining built the province. Mm-hmm. There's 17 operating mines in BC today, two smelters, and um, you know uh, one of the best places to build a new mine is close to an existing mine because that's where the the ore will be. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of people in the industry who are very focused on on making it happen. What are the, what are we mining out of those? I think you said 17 mines. What are we mostly mining? Well, in British Columbia, we're Canada's largest producer of copper. Mm-hmm. Um, we are the second largest producer of silver mm-hmm. in Canada, the only producer of molybdenum. Mm-hmm. Um, we're Canada's largest producer of steel-making coal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we produce uh, lots of uh, gold um, and many other minerals. Actually, on the critical mineral side, uh, Canada has a list of 31 critical minerals. We uh, either produce or find 16 critical minerals in British Columbia. Uh, last time I traveled to the Kootenays uh, to, to visit some mines, I think it was a tech mine many years ago, um, the average salary at that point was like $109,000 a year for miners. Uh, has that changed? It has. Um, so we mining in, in the province supports some 35,000 jobs. Hmm. And we have uh, one of the highest average annual salaries of any industry in Canada at 124000 per year. 124000 a year is yes. the average salary for miners. Wow. And as long as you can get them up and running, and <laughs> you pay yeah. well. Uh, in regards to, and we can talk about this during the uh, after the break, but I just want to touch a little bit on the issue of nickel, uh, of uh, lithium especially. We were talking to Jeremy Cato about that. How much interest are you seeing from outside investors and people wanting to get mines built uh, in regards to lithium and, and, and uh, the cobalt, and copper and nickel, those sort of critical minerals we're talking about? How yeah. much interest are you seeing here in British Columbia on that? Critical minerals has been a game changer. Um, there's significant interest, uh, significant interest in British Columbia for critical minerals. Um, we have, uh, as an example, two of the top 10 largest nickel deposits in British Columbia. 
nickel is commonly viewed as something you would find in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, one of these deposits uh, is um, is um, being uh, um, researched by FPX Nickel, owned by FPX Nickel. And the um, exciting thing about uh, FPX Nickel is they have a uh, uh, certain type of nickel deposit called Auerite, and they're proposing to both mine this nickel and refine the nickel here in British Columbia to produce battery-grade nickel sulfate. The refining process itself, it's a value-added process, mm-hmm. would uh, support some five to 600 jobs, and they could produce enough nickel to supply 17% of the North American battery uh, market demand by 2030. Just here in BC. Just here in BC. We are speaking to Michael Goring, President and CEO of the Mining Association of British Columbia. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, critical minerals. We've chatted uh, at the tail end of that l- last segment on the issue. Um, how much of an impact uh, with, with tensions between US and China? And uh, President Biden has talked about reshoring and uh, really focusing on the green economy, and part of it is uh, in and around critical minerals. How much of a a focus and pressure does that put on Canada and on British Columbia to really have a critical mineral strategy, uh, focus more on developing those critical minerals? Many Western and developed nations are looking to Canada uh, to purchase the the minerals and metals um, that they need to advance their economy and to transition to a low-carbon future. Mm-hmm. And you're hearing from some of those nations then? We are indeed. What kind of countries are we talking about? We're talking South Korea, Germany, the United States, Japan. Uh, heads of states from those nations have all been through Canada over the last two quarters. Mm-hmm. And Critical Minerals has been on the top of the agenda of all of those state visits. If that is the case, uh, when, was the la- when, w- when did the last mine in British Columbia open? Well, the last mine in BC to open was the Bruce Jack Gold Mine in northwest BC in the Taltan Territory in 2016. 2016. Okay. Now, um, but further, uh, the government of BC just provided um, Artemis Gold uh, Blackwater Gold Mine with its Mines Act permit. So it is now in construction. Okay. And they're expecting first pour at some point in 2024. 2024. So it, it just received it this year? Yes, I so think in February. So February of 2023, and you just said the one previous to that was 2016. So this is a huge timeline in regards to a mine being approved. It, it's not like something, it happens once a year, twice a year. You're talking about once one is approved, it may be another six or seven years before another one is approved in, in this country. That's correct. But you also have to consider commodity cycles as well. Yeah. Right? Uh, how much of a role, uh, sitting here in downtown Vancouver, and a lot of these mines are not going to be in Vancouver. They're going to be in the interior, in the northwest, northeast, Kootenays, um, perhaps even Vancouver Island as well. Um, how much of a role, what role do First Nations now play in regards to uh, consultation and a, mo- a mine potentially even moving forward in this province? Well, Indigenous uh, nations uh, play a significant role in mining and, as a matter of fact, in any natural resource mm-hmm. industry in British Columbia. Um, we, um, you know, have been talking to both levels of government um, about critical minerals and the need to have both governments work together to accelerate uh, Indigenous participation in the mining industry. Um, 
we don't think you know public and private sector agendas in critical minerals mm-hmm. uh, really um, aren't possible without the full participation of Indigenous nations. Is there skepticism from First Nations communities uh, when it comes to a mining project? There may be some skepticism, mm-hmm. but there is a lot of nations with significant interest in development. What they want to do, though, is they want to be at the table. Mm-hmm. They want to be able to participate. They want to be involved in decision-making. They want to feed their families just like every other British Columbian, but they want to be part of it because those mines are located on their traditional territories. What is the biggest hindrance right now in this province of ours for mining to move forward? Uh, You know, you've got mines open, but you did say mine was approved in 2016. Another one now looks like it's moving forward. It's 2023. What are the one or two things you would like to see changed in this province to spur greater growth of the mining industry? Jazz, we have 12 critical mineral projects in the queue. 12. 12. Copper, copper gold, copper silver, mm-hmm. nickel, niobium, some rare earths. In order to realize the potential of those critical mineral projects, there's two things that need to happen. First, we need the provincial and federal governments to work together lockstep, as we would expect them to, uh, to expedite critical mineral permitting. And second, we need to see greater support uh, for Indigenous participation in critical mineral projects. So that's from the province or, or just from different First Nations communities? Both uh, both crowns, the provincial government and the federal government, so, need to work together to ensure nations have the uh, capacity, uh, administrative governance, technical capacity to participate you know, on a level playing field mm-hmm. in a government-to-government setting uh, in the in the uh, major mines permitting process. Are you an optimist? I am an optimist. You sure? Yeah. <laughs> this is BC after all. <laughs> I just had the head of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade complaining about $6 billion of costs being downloaded onto business. And the bottlenecks that you're dealing with, whether it be environmental or in First Nations and capacity First Nations community, the bottlenecks are still government. Certainly. Yeah. 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 Hey, uh, you got to be an optimist in this game. Uh, I mean, that you know, we are a high cost jurisdiction for sure. Yeah. Um, but you know, we need. You know, in Canada, we're very good with aspiration. Yeah. Right. We talk about stuff. We should do this. Huge opportunity. It's time with critical minerals to move to implementation. Yeah. Right. It's and time. It's time. There you go, uh, Michael. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Seven years ago this month, more than 88,000 residents in Alberta evacuated their homes. They were chased out by a wildfire that began uh, began southwest of Fort McMurray, Alberta. It's the largest wildfire evacuation in that province's history. On May 1st, 2016, a a helicopter forestry crew first spotted the fire about 15 kilometers from Fort Mac. Uh, First responders arrived at the fire 45 minutes after it was spotted. The weather conditions were unfortunately prime for a fire to spread. It was unusually hot. A dry air mass over northern Alberta brought record-setting heat. Uh, The wildfire swept through Fort McMurray and destroyed approximately 24,000 homes and buildings. Take a listen to Fort McMurray residents as they fled their homes that day. Hasty exit. That might have been the last time. Might have been the last time I ever saw my house right there. It's like Armageddon here. There's nobody on the road, nothing. 
absolutely nobody. Cars are burnt. There's people on the side of the road with crying babies and dogs and broken cars and no gas and no food. And it's just, it's like it's in a movie. I've never seen anything like this in my life. All Albertans are watching this. All Albertans are with the people of Fort McMurray. The end of days, <laughs> literally. If you look around, there's people panicking. But I need to show you, it, it's not just on the border. This is Fort McMurray burning. This is insane. Holy Oh, you can feel the heat. Holy shit. This is crazy. Fear. I'm thankful that we got out alive, but uh, I lost a lot. Well, those events inspired our next guest to write his latest book, Fireweather, The Making of a Beast. Uh, the nonfiction work examines the events surrounding the 2016 Fort McMurray wildfire. Author John Valiant joins us now. John, thank you for speaking to us today. Hey, Jazz. It's really good to be with you. Uh, when did you make the decision to write the book? Um, was it as the ev- events uh, unfolded on the news or after? Well, you know, I think I was with everybody else watching this, you know, big, successful city disappear under this gigantic cloud. And nobody really knew what was going on under there. We knew a lot of people had escaped, but there was real uncertainty for many days, whether anyone was still left in there, how many were left in there, mm-hmm. whether the city would survive. And so that really made an impression on me as it did everybody else. And I'm a writer. And so I just, you know, I stayed with that idea. And Shortly afterward, I started looking at the surrounding weather, mm-hmm. and what I realized was, you know, this is northern Alberta, so there were the lakes were still frozen up there. There wow. were car-sized blocks of ice still on the banks of the Athabasca River. There had been frost within a couple of days prior to the fire, and so I thought, wow, if, if you can have a fire of that intensity in a place where winter has barely ended, mm-hmm. imagine what it would be like further south, say in Vancouver or Saskatoon or cottage country or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I just started, I thought, you know, this, this isn't a unique event. This really could be uh, a bellwether, you know, a sign of the future. And, and I should pay attention to it. Um, sometimes when you see these stories, there's just this hot flash of just energy and of interest from the media. And then the media moves on to something else. It's just the nature of the news business. What was it like for you to go back to Fort McMurray and to hear those stories a year later, six months later, two years later, as you researched this book? What kind of things did you hear from these people? You know, it's what I'm really glad you brought that up, Jazz, because the news moves on, but the and the people try to, but that event and many of these events that make the news are so intense for the individ- the individuals who experience them that it really doesn't go away. So I was speaking to people six months, a year later, they would burst into tears, you know, men and women, they were scarred, you know, really scarred by it. And I actually went to check in with them. You know, I interviewed dozens and dozens of people for this book over the years. And I, it took me a long time to write it. It's finally out now. So I called a lot of them to say, Hey, you know, I'm still here. I I wrote this book. It's actually coming out. And I asked them how things were. And everybody's life is different. Like that was a pivot point for everybody. And nobody lives the same life anymore who went through that experience. What, uh, as you and I talk, there are wildfires um, in Alberta. We've seen many uh, fires here in British Columbia since then uh, as well. We've heard of uh, many similar uh, wildfires in California, in Australia. What is the broader 
question or message in regards to these wildfires? What are they telling us? What are we seeing? Well, we're seeing a couple of things converging. And one of the things we're seeing is uh, construction in the WUI. And the WUI is a short term for uh, the wildlife urban interface. And that's the sweet spot in North American home construction. You know, you want to be near the forest. You want to have the running trails. You want to have a lake nearby, but you also want to have a cul-de-sac and, you know, a basketball court and be able to have your kid, you know, play on their scooter. Mm-hmm. And so when you think of the suburbs and new housing developments, a lot of the construction around Fort McMurray is in the WUI. The forest is right there. And it's a stunning place to live. It really feels good to be there until a fire comes in. And then the fire can seamlessly transition out of the forest right into your home And the modern home, as it turns out, is filled with highly volatile petroleum products from vinyl siding to tar shingles, vinyl windows. All our upholstery is based in petroleum products. And you get that up to temperature, it bursts into flame like a gas can. Hmm. And so we were seeing in Fort McMurray, firefighters were seeing houses, two-story, half-million-dollar homes volatize into flame and collapse into the basement in five minutes. And it's almost unbelievable. But when you understand that most of the house is made of petroleum products and you get it up to temperature, it bursts into flame in a very sudden way, almost like a refinery fire. Mm -hmm. And, and that, uh, so that's something we need to consider. And then the, the, the third, the elephant in the room, frankly, jazz for Canada and for, for the planet is climate change that is driven by a fossil fuel driven civilization and fossil fuels are fire. The reason we're interested in oil and gas and coal is because it burns. And so we are burning hydrocarbons like no one ever has in history. And we've been doing it decade upon decade and we've actually changed the chemistry of our atmosphere. So it retains more heat. Mm -hmm. So we live in a hotter world that is more conducive to fire. Uh, this week, or in fact, last two weeks on this show, we've talked about uh, communities opening up cooling centers during um, uh, heat waves, and we've had a couple of days that have been kind of hot, and, and communities now have to look at offering cooling stations in their communities because many people do not have air conditioning or cooling systems. Uh, this week on this show, we've also talked about uh, landlords or public policy proposal from the Lower Mainland um, Governments Association where landlords would be obligated to provide a cooling system to renters just as they're obligated to provide heating. We've also looked at brand new schools over the last seven or eight years that have been built, but none of them had a cooling system. So students and teachers are having a much more difficult time in the last couple of weeks with a bit more heat in the lower mainland learning where temperatures are hitting 28, 29, 30, 31 degrees Celsius. These are all public policy conversations that are happening because of that very issue you've raised in regards to climate change. Do you think the system, and the system I mean government, ultimately it is government, can move fast enough to address this issue? We're debating carbon taxes are too high, yet our students are too warm in our schools for lower mainland now. And I mean, do you think the system can move fast enough to address some of these issues that you you correctly uh, brought up? Jazz, I, I really do. Uh, I do have faith uh, in part, you know, in watching how societies and, and cities and towns and, and entire countries reacted to uh, the coronavirus pandemic. You know, mm-hmm. huge changes happened very, very quickly. And, you know, I think we, we do need to have some forgiveness for ourselves for just the shock that we're in. I moved here 25 years ago and the idea of there being 
of people overheating, of literally dying from the heat as they did during the heat dome of 2021 was unimaginable. No, no one could imagine it. And so this world has changed under our feet and around us very, very quickly. And so we're having, you know, the city was built for a completely different temperature. And so we, re- to the, the, the mindset shift that, that we have to collectively go through at the policy level and also at the individual level, at the construction level, at the educational level, is really huge. You know, it's all of a sudden we've been told, well, you live in a different world now react accordingly and that's a big ask and i believe we can do it but and and we are doing it but it's it is genuinely shocking and we have every right i think to be shocked and amazed and and frankly somewhat traumatized by the fact that now the weather can actually kill our fellow citizens you know even without a fire just the temperature alone killed more than 600 fellow british columbians in 2001 and that we just again it's it's really hard to wrap your head around. No, we obviously we're going to have to do it. Yeah, and you wouldn't have thought of something like that even five years ago. I was reading a no. New, York, New Yorker article uh, six months ago talking about, you know, there are literally places in this world where human beings may not be able to live in anymore. I, like I, as a foreign correspondent one time, had been based in Beijing. I've been based in New Delhi as well. The city in New Delhi oh, wow. in August, temperature yeah. would hit about 43, 40 degrees Celsius, 44. <laughs> it's now hitting yeah. 50 degrees to the point where birds are falling from the sky. And people are just, uh, the human body shuts down at some point. They cannot work in that heat either, right? And, That's right. And you raise a very good point. And what I take from this book, more than just the uh, wonderful work that you've done and the research you've done and wonderful stories you've told, and I love what I love best about it is that you remain an optimist so i really thank you for that yeah no i really i really do you know we're incredibly adaptable there are huge changes really difficult changes ahead of us but there are so many adaptations we can make that i think will actually make our lives better you know i think this fear that oh i'm going to have to change so my life will somehow be less and i don't think it has to be that way it may be different, but I don't think it will be less necessarily. And, and the things that may be less, like maybe we do more public transit and you know, drive smaller cars or don't drive, that, that diminishment may not be really such a diminishment. It actually might be quite liberating. Yeah. John, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate the conversation today. Hey, thanks, Jazz. I really appreciate your interest. For listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.